You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for the screening party uh, and panel discussion to celebrate the film A Poem and a Mistake. As always, I would like to start by acknowledging that ACA is situated on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who have cared for country and culture over millennia and continue to do so. At ACA, we extend our respects to elders past, present and future, and to all First Nations people who may be tuning into this program today. This program is associated with the ACCA exhibition, A Biography of Daphne, which is on display until 14 November. Curated by Mikna Merkin, A Biography of Daphne is a rich project that takes the classical myth of Daphne from Ovid's Metamorphosis as the starting point for an investigation of trauma, transformation and symbiosis in a wide array of contemporary art. This film, A Poem and a Mistake, is part of the exhibition and is available online for viewing, further viewing, until 4th of October. Today's program will screen this 57-minute film to start, followed by a panel discussion. We're also going to add the link to the film in the chat to provide you with an alternative online viewing film should you have any issues in connection today. The discussion that follows will be moderated by Alexis Grenell, a political consultant who writes frequently about gender and politics and is still a, re a regular columnist for The Nation. Hi, Alexis. <laughs> the speakers today include Cherry Maggard, playwright and co-creator of A Poem and a Mistake, who is also Assistant Arts Professor of Dramatic Writing at NYU Tisch. Hi, Cherry. Sarah Baskin is also joining us, an actor and co-creator of A Poem and, Mis and a Mistake. Hi. Uh, Tamila Woodard, uh, Director of the uh, Poem and a Mistake and Chair of Acting Program at Yale School of Drama is joining us. Hi, Tamila. Uh, and Stephanie McCarter, Associate Professor of Classical Languages at Sewanee University of the South in Tennessee and the first woman to translate Ovid's Metamorphosis into verse, which is forthcoming by Penguin Classics in 2022. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, and just lastly, please be advised uh, for those viewing today, this program includes references to sexual assault and other mature content. Thank you to all of you for joining us and thank you to our, our panelists, a very warm welcome. We'll be jumping back on uh, after the screening uh, for a lively discussion. Thank you so much, enjoy the program. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to this talk back that I am so incredibly honored to be moderating. Um, I want to start off by um, quoting something that Stephanie McCarter and Sherry Magid uh, said to each other. If you listen to the podcast that's available on the website, that's the companion listening to this fantastic play. Um, and it's Professor McCarter who says, you know, um, Ovid appeals to people comfortable with complexity. They're, they're not being an explanation. If you want a nice, neat universe with a goal at the end of it, Ovid is not for you. And um, Ovid appeals to me for that very reason, as does so much of Sherry's work, which I've been um, incredibly privileged to see. And I wanted to open with that to set the table because I want to talk about interpretation and adaptation, which I think are like these big themes throughout this incredible work. So um, I want to start with... Professor McCarter, because in that same podcast, you said something else, which is before you translate, you have to interpret. 
So maybe you could tell our audience a little bit how you, the first interpreter of Ovid, managed to find 50 rapes in this century-old text that had previously not been interpreted as rapes. Well, I'll say two things. So I have to give um, credit to Mary Innes, who went before me. She translated the um, epic into English prose in the 1950s. So I want to be sure to give her recognition. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, there's been in the past several decades, many women scholars, feminist scholars working on this text. Um, and unfortunately, you know, women have not been particularly, you know, women uh, who are scholars have not been encouraged to translate this text. And so often this is something that, um, you know, every other translator of the Metamorphoses has been uh, male. And usually this is something that people do in their retirement. So to me, I think it was just the fact that I was in the classroom teaching this text to young women um, who were interested in, you know, ideas of power and agency, and these are questions they deal with in their own lives, and they would not dare let me get away with teaching this text without acknowledging the reality of rape uh, in the text. So this, this is how it came to be such a focus of my own reading and interpretation. How is it you think, though, that, you know, centuries of translation have gotten away without seeing that because so much of this piece is about perspective, right? We have the professor, we have Murrah. Uh, they, the professor is transformed into Murrah at some point. And when he comes out the other end, all of a sudden these, you know, figurative rapes are quite literal. So I'm curious to understand a little bit more about how, um, you think they were unseen before? Like, I want to get into that question of interpretation because so much of the language, I mean, even the language says things like the body that gives to change this body that is given too much delight. Uh, you know, she, it refers, we, we hear what she desires. He still denies with these concepts that we think of as part of consensual, joyful, good sex, positive experiences, this body that's given too much delight. I mean, delight for whom, Right. You know, I think it's much of this is, again, who we want Ovid to be. And, um, you know, do you want him? I'm thinking at the I'm thinking of the uh, the back of an edition of a translation describes Ovid as sensual. <laughs> so people want Ovid to be sensual. They want Ovid to be playful. They often want him to be funny and they want him to be irreverent. Thinking about power so consistently and having something so unpleasant as sexual violence central to the epic maybe hasn't always um you know uh aligned with that desire for him to be playful and sexy and things like that so um i think we need to allow ovid to be all of those things and he is at different times and you know i, I think you're simplifying ovid and just not seeing the complexity of this text if you're not also disturbed by um by the violence that it contains um and acknowledging it and thinking really carefully about why it's there. But again, I think it's, I think it's because there's this preconception. This is what we want him to be. I worry that maybe it's also because it just wasn't seen, <laughs> right, in the past. Even though the Latin usually always makes this very clear um, that when somebody is being raped. Um, so maybe it's not seen. Maybe it's it doesn't you know, accord with our preconceptions of what Ovid is. And maybe, you know, in the past, we just don't know how to talk about rape. We certainly don't know how to translate it. Um, and so in English, we're very reticent about it and fall back on euphemism so much. And translation, I really strongly believe, reflects the culture of the translator. 
And, um, and so we can learn so much about our own attitudes towards sexual violence, towards all kinds of things by thinking of how we translate these things, because they're going to, it's a mirror that we hold up to ourselves very often. So I want to bring Sherry and Tamala in now to talk a little bit more about that idea of translation, because I mean, obviously this is a play that has been adapted for film um, off of a text that is the sort of, whether you read more metamorphosis or not, you probably know these myths. We know these stories. So even if you have never read the text, you probably heard them somewhere. So we've had, we have several degrees of translation, so to speak. Um, and I, I'm, I'm just curious kind of how you, there's so much in this film that, that it's like a one woman show that's totally fascinating the entire way through, which is, I think, incredibly hard to do. I have, to, I mean, I'm, I, I've, I've watched now three times. I thought it was great each time through and I noticed new things. So Sherry, I was hoping you could start us off talking a little bit about how you did this and why, and maybe Tamala, you can talk about taking it off the page because I read the version on the page that Sherry wrote and transforming it into something visceral and touchable in this very intuitive way. Sherry, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, well, okay, so the reason that, like it, it, it was a two-pronged reason why I was interested in the material. One was Sarah Baskin. Sarah and I always wanted to work together. And um, somewhere along the line, we said, I am gonna write you a, a one-person show. And so we were hunting around to try to figure out what to do. And we, we had another idea, which was based on somebody that I know named Mara, um, not Mura, but Mara. And so that sort of led to Mura. And at the same time, I was um, working with Stephanie on my opera, Penelope and the Geese, which is composed by Melitza Paranosic. And the two of us were talking to Stephanie a lot. And then I just fell down the rabbit hole of the interesting work that Stephanie was doing. And it also dovetailed with, um, you know, I'm a professor and there's so many texts that I started looking at differently. And I was really conscious of not only the women in the room, but like, you know, you just don't know who's the victim of sexual violence. You just don't know. And um, I think that like one interesting thing, when I look back to knowing, to like learning metamorphosis, like knowing the stories and I'm, one thing that I really think about is like seeing a picture of the beautiful Bernini sculpture, Apollo and Daphne, and like, you know, looking at the beauty and looking at the curvilinear forms and looking how it's life-size and all these things. And no one ever said, and this is sexual assault, no one ever mentioned it. Like, it's stunning to me that I studied it and didn't even see it or know it. And um, I feel like... Um, once you start seeing it, it's everywhere. Um, and so, you know, um, the, the birth of this was like, okay, we're going to do a one person show about translation and interpretation of metamorphosis. How the hell do you make that theatrical and dynamic? Um, so that's where this whole, like, okay, it's about metamorphosis. 
what are the metamorphoses that are going to happen in this? And that's where the professor turning into Mura happened. And also when you're writing a one person show, like you only have a few tools. So my tool was Sarah. What can Sarah do? And I'm like, Sarah can do anything. So I am just going to try to um, give her like Ovid, like all the different ways in which Ovid is funny and violent and inappropriate and um, like all the different things and trying to form it it that way. Um, yeah, so, um, so, so that's how the piece was birthed um, as this one person show. Um, and then I'll turn it over to Tamala, but like, yeah, when we had this opportunity trying to figure out how to make it dynamic visually, um, we, I knew how to maybe do that theatrically, but doing filmically was going to be a challenge. We definitely needed a collaborator who had a vision. So. Tamala, talk to us. Yeah, I, I um, also just like so much, so much um, love to, to Sarah who has to talk about, because the real transformation of this is really the actor taking this idea off of the page and like um, um, confirming the hypothesis, you know, and that is, that itself, I mean, it's, you know, talk about a magic act. <laughs> <laughs> that's, really, that's really what it was. And so the, I, I think part of, I'm, a, I'm not a film director, I'm a theater director. And what we wanted to do was to get this theatrical theater piece on in a way that could be shared in the time when we couldn't gather audiences, right? And um, so we kept the things that are theater, we kept things that are make-believe. So the whole thing is full of make-believe stuff. There's a room that's made out of uh, brown paper and some clip lights, you know? <laughs> and then there's Sarah, who is the who is the spirit of the whole thing, um, who in herself is transforming, is doing a many levels of transformation, transforming something written into something live, transforming a myth into... Um, uh, a story that is a real story about, you know, is a story about a, 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 how a woman has tried to find herself or we see herself in the world. And then transforming a theater audience into a sort of film audience and having them be okay with no tricks, you know? And so the whole thing was just its own like um, offering for us to form and transform and 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 um, inside of the story, like Russian, like Russian dolls. Um, but none of it is possible without a kind of sustained attention um, that I think Sarah brought um, to it, that Sherry really created around the talents um, that exist in the room. It's funny, you guys. I laughed out loud, like I still laughed out loud. I was like, that's so dumb. <laughs> I totally laugh too. I just, I feel like so much of this discussion, you know, like the, the whole idea of interpretation and adaptation is the metaphor for the substance of this piece, which is this idea of like, what is transformation anyway? Like there's so many lines about it. And I want to, Sarah has all of them, which is why I've, I've saved the best for last Miss Baskin, which is like lines like, you know, maybe we read Ovid in search of our own desire to change or 
what we start off with, which is, you know, Ovid writes, I intend to speak of forms changed into new bodies, a body in crisis in search of a new body. So, I mean, Sarah, you have all these lines, like, tell us, what is this, what is this about? What is, what is, I mean, we explore this idea of change and transformation in so many different dimensions in this work. Like, you're the one who says all these lines. Tell us what it's about, please. <laughs> um, okay, I will do my best. <laughs> um, I just want to say that in like in in that question of what this process, which was really transformative, was so unusual because I felt like I was working in a vac- vacuum, like I it was just me and my own brain, and as soon as we were in the room with collaborators, that's when the transformation happened. Like there were ways in which I couldn't articulate actually what I thought it was about until Tamala said, oh, I think like this is what's happening here. I'm like, oh yeah. But I was like, well, what was I thinking I was doing before? It was a very, it's such a, I don't know if I'm making sense, but the play is so layered that sometimes I, I like, even when I was watching the footage after, I was like, oh, that's what I was doing there, which I don't think I've ever quite had with any other piece quite like this one. So I think that it, um, in our process, um, actually, Tamala, you said something that like really uh, stuck with me that I'd never put together before, which is that we search for ourselves in art. Like when we're watching something, be it a film, reading a book, um, seeing a play, seeing a film play, we're looking for ourselves consciously or unconsciously. You know, I think that's why so much of us are drawn to the arts and drawn to literatures. We read for a sense of connection with the material. And, um, and that's why art is transformative. And when you find yourself, there's this like, there's this acknowledgement between you and the material. And I think in, academic environments, you want that acknowledgement in the classroom, in the conversation. And so right now, what I think the play is ultimately about is Mura's search for herself, for herself. Um, she thinks she's searching for it in Ovid, but she's actually searching for it just in healing, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, it's really about like, you know, some the we've used the Russian doll metaphor a lot, but like as you search for yourself, like you think you find yourself, and then there's another self, there's another self, there's another self. So like the transformation is is endless, and um, yeah, that, that's what I have right now. And, you know, one of the things I clocked in this piece was there. You know, like in the actual metamorphosis, there's all this transformation, but sometimes it's a punishment, and sometimes it's salvation. And understanding change as this continuum, as, as not necessarily good or bad, just what happens. I mean, Io is punished by being turned into a cow. And then she comes, she's turned back eventually. And according to the myth, she becomes like a great queen of Egypt, worshipped in, you know, for centuries. Her, her, the act of being changed or even seeking change, like Sarah, you said, like we seek to know ourselves through the transformative experience of art. Um, there isn't a judgment call in this work. It's just what, it just is. Sherry, I see you like nodding 
strenuously talk to her. I'm nodding strenuously. Um, it just, um, I said this in the, in the talk that Stephanie and I did, but there's this um, essay by this playwright, Sarah Rule, called On Ovid. And um, it's basically about how it's not, Ovid doesn't work in an Aristotelian universe. It's like Aristotelian thought, which is the way most uh, art, most most movies uh, work in the U.S. The standard model is there's a cause and effect. You do something, it causes this, which causes this, which causes this. And there's there's nothing wrong with that kind of storytelling. But we all know that sometimes things just happen. And Ovid's, in Ovid, things happen because they happen. Right. So like it's not a moral universe, like sometimes things happen for work, for ill, and sometimes they happen for good. And sometimes it's a little for both. Um, But there's this that the the magic is the event instead of the cause and the effect. And um, I, I love that. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the idea Sarah brought in of healing, that transformation, this series of transformations are healing are our self-knowledge is just a thing that happens to you and that it's not a, um, a, again, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just what life is perhaps yeah. is this sort of through line. Um, I want to though, you know, there's something Sherry in, in the, in the piece, you've got Murrah who is telling us about bad things that happened to her. Like she is framing certain acts of sexual violence against her as bad, right? This is not a, well, it's up to interpretation. She's telling us what happened. She's conveying her pain. She's telling us her first kiss is basically like the gross older brother of a girl she's like worships, just like sticking his tongue down her throat. Like that sucks. And we have like Sarah's voice, like immediately switching into like that, you know, I honestly listening to Sarah, I feel like I was having conversation with Sherry because the it's how Sherry talks. I mean, full disclosure, <laughs> Sherry's a very good friend of mine. So listening to this and having listened to Sherry over the years talk about putting together this work, you know, when she was like, that sucks. I was like, yes, that's my friend saying that right now to me, my <laughs> ear. But I mean, it, it tell, it's a judgment. We are hearing that that sucked, like at the bare minimum. So I do want to like bring that in here because we're not saying that like, hey, rape just happens and it's all cool. And like, you're just transformed and life goes on and it's part of being. I mean, it is on the one hand, in the sense that it is part of being in the world. If you are a woman, of course, there's also rape against um, women perform rapes in this play and then this work as well. But let's talk a little bit about the judgment here, because there is a moral universe. It's not Ovid's moral universe. It's the one that this work imposes on the events in Ovid. It's Stephanie's interpretation of, and Stephanie, maybe you could talk a little bit about the language, because in the podcast, you say that the word for rape in Latin, vis, is also the word for sex. Um, I wouldn't say it's the word for sex. It's just, it's the word for violence in general. Um, And so it can be violence in in lots of different forms. And so I think that that word acknowledges what we sometimes fail to acknowledge. Um, We think of rape as a crime of passion too much, which it's not, it's a crime of power, right? And so vis is a, um, I I think an acknowledgement of that particular phenomenon. Um, I did want to come back to the Ovid's moral universe because the big debate here is, you know, how, what does he feel? How, what is his judgment? Does he render judgment? And, and that's hard to know. But I think one thing Ovid does acknowledge is that um, some wounds 
can't be healed. And, and transformation sometimes encapsulates that kind of pain too. And that sexual violence is one of those wounds that simply can't. I'm thinking of Sienny, um, who is the victim of kind of a metaphorical rape um, and uh, by Pluto. And he, he talks about the fact that she has a wound that can't be healed. And so sometimes you can't, you can't get to that point and transformation is a result of that too so i don't know what Ovid's stance is towards this but he certainly acknowledges that some trauma is permanent and he acknowledges that rape is a crime of uh, of power and so whatever his judgment is it, it gives us the tools to think about rape as a moral um crime you know, as a crime and uh, and as a phenomenon um so he could be empowering in that way but to put it on the, you know, the play gives us a continuum of, of aggressions, right? It's not just rape. We, I mean, Murrah is raped at the end, but she's also coerced. She's also um, hears about, you know, we hear about the friend in France who's on the train and a man ejaculates on her. We hear about a continuum of aggression. So like, again, this goes back to the complexity piece. That continuum is framed as a moral, with a moral judgment, as bad. These are not good things that happened. But are, are, I guess my question is maybe more for Sherry, because I don't know that they're exactly framed as bad either. They're framed as not good. Can you um, speak more? Yeah, I mean, okay. So Ovid said that he was um, sent from Rome because of a poem and a mistake. Um, but no one knows what the mistake is. Right. It's, there's all these theories about what what did he do wrong that got him ejected. And in the same way, Murrah is trying to come to terms with what happened with the composer. And she's searching for the mistake that surely she made somewhere along the line that caused this in that Aristotelian universe that we're talking about, because she did something that caused something. And I think the conclusion that she comes to is that she didn't do anything wrong, you know? And I think there's a lot of people that experience sexual assault that are certain that they did something wrong because we have that moral framework. So, so that's where it comes from. And, and I think one thing that I was also really interested in is that sometimes these aggressors are female and I don't just mean the, 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 the composer at the end, but just the way that women also adopt, adopt these rules of patriarchy and the way that she's repeatedly silenced. And um, we talked a lot about that in rehearsal. And then that she's, she, in a moment of being frustrated, slut shamed, um, Marjorie and, and like that there's this continuum of learned behavior that we as women are party to too. And I, I think that that's one aspect that we don't talk about that much that you actually wrote about Alexis for the New York times. Um, so it, I know you're thinking about that too. Um, just that how endemic that culture is and how hard it is to escape. Well, that's one of the transformations that I just want to bring up because this is the question of who's a slut and who makes a woman a slut. And in the, in the play, it's women and men who accuse women of being sluts. So like Sarah in Tamala, like you, the, the, the way that moment is played, there's the Sinclair calling Murrah a slut 
So it's Mira receiving it, and then it's her throwing it at Marjorie. To me, those were bookends. It's like I've been named a slut, and now I get to you know use that word and cut down another woman, just like level her. Can we? I want to like that. That's a, and, and I want to more broadly talk about the way in which like that's a transformation. Like I can't. I don't know that I've known any woman who hasn't at some point been called a slut, and what that's, that means. I think a lot about the circularity of things, you know, I, I mean, I, in this, in Ovid's world, you know, that there's no moral universe, you know, as in there's not a centric, it, there's not a centric event, right? There's not a thing through which something passes through and you go, ah, that's why, right? And so we often are looking for the center. We're like, ah, that's why. But really what we do are we're, we're victims and perpetrators, victims and perpetrators, victims and perpetrators. And part of, 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 of trying to um, shed your victimhood is to pass it to someone else, and that's what that's what we learn, right? That's 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 something that's learned. And so I really love this line that's um, about Mary Beard um, that you that you can't ask a person to be different in the same system, mm-hmm. and so what's needed is a different system. And to me, that's what's the, that's this that's the like invitation here. It's like, see, we're gonna do that, and it's gonna be that. We're gonna do that. It's gonna be that. There's no way to be different in the same system. And when we're tired of just going around the merry-go-round again and again and again, maybe, maybe we'll let ourselves imagine a whole different system. And I think that's the the invitation of Ovid. I'm curious where Mura ends up though, right? Because she ends back with the professor. They've now, they've kind of found a, a, a meeting of minds, right? The, the circle, he comes back after being transformed into her and seeing the world through her eyes and going through all these transformations and says, okay, like maybe I get it a little bit. I mean, there's sort of that, mutuality at the end too, Sarah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying, Tamla. I just, I think I, I'm curious. It doesn't end so neatly as in like this endless cycle. It kind of gives us a little bit of a, wait, we might, we might have a resolution here. Sarah, is that how, that's how it, it I don't know. <laughs> I mean, well, what I, um, I see it a little like, like the the invitation that Tamala is speaking about that makes so much sense to me is that Murrah through this journey then becomes the type of professor who is able to hold a different kind of conversation in relation to the text, which is the invitation. And um, that to me is the resolution that the, the professor, we, you know, it's implied and I feel it that he will teach differently, but it's really about who Murrah becomes in the classroom in relation to the text. And, and that is the sort of the new world that she, you know, she references the myth about we're gonna remake the world, a world of wholeness. Yeah. I like to think about yes. that when I'm teaching. Uh, that to me, which oddly enough, that was one of those moments where I understood it, but we were shooting that scene so late that then when I watched it, I was like, yes, like that's when I really got it. But I also want to say in terms of like the morality um, 
like good or, or bad. I think one of the most interesting things for me is that all of the aggressions um, happen in one body and not just because it, it's me playing it, that it's my body, but anybody who does it, that uh, there was a point where someone like way in an earlier draft suggested it be two bodies. And I was like, no, I think it's so important that it be, that everything becomes so fluid. It's a woman playing a man transformed into a woman who is both the predator and the prey and the one who is silenced and the silencer, but it's, we're all seeing it in one body. So it's not like now you're a good, you're a person. Now you're a good person. Now you're a bad person. It's like, we're all seeing it through one vessel. So it really becomes about like the circularity of how we experience things. Then we make someone else experience that thing. And like, I, I, I think the piece um, causes a, a reflection of like, where have I harmed? When have I been harmed? And then when have I harmed? And that is a really interesting question. I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think that um, the narrative to me sort of goes like this, that it really is about like when we're harming and when we've been harmed and how we stop the spiral of it. And, you know, that's the new invitation. So that's how I see the morality. Like clearly the experiences of like, clearly the stories are bad. They're, uh, they're framed in our culture as not being good. It's like the, the, the byproduct of growing up in a female body. That's how I see the young Murrah stories. Like this is how I learned to interact. This is how I learned to manage. This is how I learned to exist in a body. But um yeah, so I don't think I had an end to that sentence. <laughs> yeah, so that that's really how 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 I see it. Yeah, I think that came through very clearly. Um, I think it really worked was symmetrical with what Tamala's point was, and that idea of wholeness that we are many contradictions in one body, and it's not an easy or straightforward analysis. And which goes back to the idea that there there isn't a moral universe exactly here. Um, but there is too at the same time. I mean, as you say, like Murad does tell the story about what it is to grow up in a female body. And um, that question of, of harm and healing and point of view is really key here. And I think that goes back to, I think the question of interpretation, right? Because we're, we're, we see multiple points of view, but we also, I just have to go back to the text, like Stephanie, this, this is not, in, these are not interpreted as rapes for most of time. And I, I mean, you didn't say it quite so directly, but I'll suggest it. Like, I would imagine that's because it's men doing the interpreting and this is a male point of view. You know, going to the, going to the same Bernini that, uh, that Sherry uh, referred to, you know, again, people, we don't talk about that as rape, but if you look, sorry, I have this, <laughs> this little Bernini here, <laughs> but like Debbie's face is just terrified. I mean, she's so clearly being, this is being done to her against her will. So I do think, you know, we've always known, right, that, that these things are not consensual. Do we have language to describe that is the question, right? And have we been empowered and taught how to describe that? And, um, you know, 
again, I don't think that, I think this is a reflection of, you know, the way we understand Ovid is a reflection of ourselves. Again, like I, I, um, I see here in the Q&A, somebody mentioned the fact that we didn't really understand rape as a formulation of power into like the 70s. And so are we just you know, putting that back on the text? I don't think so. I think that these things are there in the text, but we are able to see them because of who we are and our time in which we live. Um, so, you know, I do think people have always known these things are not consensual, but we don't, haven't always liked to talk about it. It's not a pretty way to talk about the past. We would like epic poetry to be about moral values and great heroes. And so um, we're not going to um, necessarily always speak about that clearly. And again, there, there are translators who translate certain things as rape. I mean, the rape of Philomela is always translated as rape. But there's not a consistency with the way that we handle this. And there's a tendency to want to romanticize. And so to me, it's just, you know, trying to maintain this is what this is. This is these are the implications of this. This is the centrality of this in the text. Um, and you can't look away from it. That's what I think is important about, um, you know, these new ways. I don't want to say new ways of reading Ovid, but new ways of translating Ovid. And interpreting all of it and adapting him. I mean, I, I think that I, in watching this, I went and I pulled out my childhood book of Greek myths and I pulled up the myth of Daphne and I'll just read, this is what I read, I like my whole childhood that I loved. Um, Daphne had a cold heart. She had vowed never to marry. And when Apollo wooed her, she would not listen to the sound of his golden lyre and ran away. I know. There. You know my son and I have read these together and we've talked, I've used these myths as a way to actually talk to my eight-year-old about consent. And, um, and you know, we, we talk about the fact that Apollo chased Daphne. She did not want to kiss him. What does he think about that? And now whenever he hears the story about Apollo and Daphne, he's that's the one who kissed the girl who, who didn't want to kiss him. And that is wrong. And I'm, thank you. So again, I think reading myth can be empowering if you have the right guide through myth. Well, on that note, I actually want to bring in one of the audience questions um, because I think that, that we're in a good place for it. So someone asks, um, I'm curious what the thought process was behind making the abuser a woman, the composer, obviously we're talking about. Do you think it generated different conversations as you built the piece from what you would have discussed if it had been a male character? I may not recover from the line about the diamond ring, <laughs> which I think was very visceral. Um, uh, I, I think that, um, we always knew that the perpetrator was going to be a woman at the end because, um, because of this whole thing of how women fit into this patriarchal universe. And, um, specifically, I think that it came, I started thinking about it. Um, Stephanie has a really wonderful article about is Calypso a racist, a racist, sorry, a rapist. Um, <laughs> that's a different article. No. Um, <laughs> is she a rapist? Um, and uh, uh, that was for electric lit also, Stephanie. Yeah. Um, well, why don't I let you talk about that, about that article? Cause I thought it was fascinating and it really stayed with me. Well, my premise of the article was that we often want to take these ancient mythical women figures and goddesses and turn them into feminist heroes. And I just find that 
problematic when uh, Calypso has kept uh, Odysseus on her island for seven years, basically, as you know, she's enslaved him. And um, and so to me, she's just replicating the system of power that, um, that this patriarchal and abusive that we see so often. And so I just was making the argument that we need to, you know, resist making these characters feminist heroes because I don't want that to be feminism. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think also what I wanted to write about in the play is that, you know, in this post-Me Too era, there's more understanding when things follow the script of a powerful woman um, assaulting or abusing, um, a powerful man abusing a woman. But when it's a, it's different genders, like if it's male on male or if it's woman on male or if it's woman on woman, it's like it it's it's almost not acknowledged or people can't talk about it as much and um that that again goes back to the whole idea of it's not necessarily about gender or sexuality it's all about power and anyone who's in power like stephanie you talk about this in that article is 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 playing the male and anyone who's being acted upon is playing the female regardless of who, what gender is are in those roles. And I thought that was fascinating. So that was the reason for the woman being the aggressor at the end. Uh, hmm. I, I just wanna add, cause uh, Beth said, do you think it would generate different conversations? Um, oh, do you think it generated different conversations as you built the piece? Um, I, I just wanna say that I think something that's interesting is, you know, even when you listen to the news and especially since there's just so much divisiveness right now in general, there's a tendency to be like, that's the side I am on. That's the side I'm on. Like it's very, there's like a neat, um, you can slice something down the middle and then you want to put yourself on the side that you label good. Just talking about morality. This is good. This is bad. And I think it complicates that when it's um, a woman I think that um, it just creates a less sort of um, like a split down the middle. Um, and I also feel that the professor, uh, not Mura, um, is experiencing, well, there, it's abuse from gods and it's different, but there is, there's abuse from all over in the piece. I see it as just like from many angles. Um, yeah. Well, Mur Mura, of course, physically, uh, assaults the professor she shoves him she attacks him so, so there's there you know she's she's the aggressor in in that sense there yeah i i like this also, part of yeah Tamara, go ahead please. i was just gonna say that you know the professor aka not mura is receiving aggression from the gods but in when you're a victim the aggressor is like a god. You feel powerless. You feel that you do not have enough agency to change the situation. And so, I, I mean, it's just like, it's such a, like, you know, it's just such a great reflection, a great mirror um, to how we receive, like when we're, when we become victims, but it's something in our brains say that we are not able to, or we're, you know, our brains or the, um, the location that we're in or the country that we're in or the culture that we're in, you know, render us powerless and those people ever powerful like the gods. 
Um, and right. so the situation is exactly the same. It is, it is 100% parallel, you know, it's the same. We have another question um, that I want to put, so which is uh, to the group. For when we can fully and safely return to theaters, do you think the script lives on the stage or does it stay in this film format? So Tamla, why don't you take a first stab at that? Yeah, yeah, we tried to like keep that present. <laughs> You know, we, we could have gone on location, but what we did was we put ourselves inside of something that is a, a space where live performance and installation happens and then put in an installation and then put, you know, Sarah there um, with no other people and just the camera talking to directly talking to an audience, you know, an audience of we should feel like just one. So um, I think the idea was to not get too far away from um, Sherry's intention, which was, this is a very live event. This is a conversation that unfolds between, you know, the, 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 the teller and the people who are um, li listening as they reflect on their own um, relationships. So yeah, yeah, I, I hope we, we didn't turn it into a film. I hope we just invited people to watch some, a theater piece in their living rooms. <laughs> And I just had typed a, uh, an answer to Tristan that yes, we do hope to have a performance on the stage in the future at some point um, as well. It's sort of like, just like the play, it feels like the piece split in two. And now this feels like such a realized version of it that will feel so different than when we get to eventually perform it on stage. I have to say though, you know, Sarah, you have such incredibly an expressive face. I mean, so much of this, this whole production lives on your face and you have to turn into all these different people. So I, you know, one of the things I noticed is, you know, Tamla's direction with camera angles and with, you know, it's very intentional. I mean, it's like the work, the invisible work that, you know, you, that isn't obvious to you. You just immediately accept and it lives with you because it's done so well that we would lose in a, in, a, in a theatrical production. I just want to put that on the table because, you know, what's amazing about this film is it's one person doing all this transformation and we get this, these up-close transitions that I loved so much. Being able to, like, watch every, like, eyebrow twitch and, you know, like, lip curl and kind of snarl. And I, you know, Sh Sherry, I... I know you like love watching Sarah's face too. So what do you think about how that would translate back to the stage? Well, I want to say that um, we were, we were very lucky and I'm going to credit um, Suzanne Bennett and shout out Socrates that throughout the pandemic, um, uh, I, we, I wrote it and like 36 hours later, Sarah was performing it outside in front of an audience. Um, uh, that was like August of 2020, right, Sarah? And then we did it again in October of 2020. So the first two times this play was performed, and granted, it was a reading, but was in front of live, you know, was live. Um, so, um, I mean, like, I, it's an interesting time artistically which is such a weird thing to say because so much performance has suffered but um I I sort of love that we like had to think of a different way to present it 
in order to bring it to people. And I love also that we're going to, I mean, you talk about translation, we're going to translate it for the stage and we're going to do different scenic things and, you know, different things with how Sarah moves her body. Um, so I, I am thrilled that it lives in two forms. And, and I'm also like, I feel like this new form of like theater for film or virtual performance is so nascent. And I feel like Tamala found this really wonderful way to, of translation in that way. And it's, it's tough. It's not an easy, natural thing, but um, I, I'm thrilled that it can live in two forms. And I think that there'll just be different takeaways from them. I intend to see the theater production whenever you mount it. So I'll, I'll let everyone know how it worked out um, in the audience. I'll send my notes back. Um, I, I kind of want to, you know, we, we're, I want to go back to something for a second because it really struck me and I, and I think it needs maybe some discussion before we wrap up, which is that, Sherry, you mentioned before, there's this question of blame, right? Mira is looking for what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And the way you explore that is you kind of go to another epic poem. You bring in the Passover Seder as a vice. <laughs> and I just, I think it's important to set the table, no pun intended, for what that is. Um, and the way in which you've merged mythologies in that moment, that was pretty cool to me. And I wanna hear a little more about that. And I wanna hear like, you know, maybe you could explain to everybody what that was because you say Dianu, Sarah, but there's never any definition, but I, it, it completely works if you know what that's about. And I think you guys did a beautiful job of it. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and the merging mythologies. Um, so the section is, Sarah, what is it? It's book 12, I think. Is it book 12? Maybe it's book 12. <laughs> we had to change around the, the book numbers because I wrote two book nines originally, and then we had to solve that problem. So I, um, anyway, so the section in the Passover Seder is Dianu, and uh, it's Dianu is, it would have been enough for us. And what the traditional... Um, song is, is it's like, if he had given us the Torah, but not taken us to Israel, it would have been enough for us. If he had um, opened the Red Sea, but not uh, smote the Egyptians, it would have been enough for us. And each, each step, it would have been enough for us. And um, I, I think, well, first of all, that was, I, I was in a writer's group and we did free writing and it just came up. But um, I think that I'm very interested in the rhythm of language I'm very interested in Ovid's rhythm of the stories within stories within stories and how he changes. And I'm very interested in the, in the rhythms, the Judaic rhythms of the Seder. Um, so I think that's why they crossed. And I, I knew that there was this chorus that was following her around. And um, so the, the karaoke becomes the call and response in the Seder. So that was a, a connection, but um yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I think also when you when you grow up 
with these holidays, they, they become, the rhythms become ingrained. So they're, they're just in my body and they're, I know they're in Sarah's body too. She responded so much to it. And Melissa had a little Dianu riff in her music at that point too, which is cool. Um, yeah. So that, so, so that's how that came to be. Sarah. I, I really love that moment. Um, because I think that there's something powerful that happens when you're um, a guest at a ritual, like a guest at a ritual, even if it's not. Um, it, uh, when I was a kid, I would hear um, my parents actually are musicians. That's pulled from fact. And they would play concerts in churches. And I um, and I would sit in a church, which is not my part of my faith but there's like a something that happens when you hear music in a church around the holiday season and it's really powerful and I think that um and I've had that experience at other uh um other you know being a guest at a religious ceremony or a ritual where it might not be yours but there's something happening that's really powerful and it opens up this feeling in the body um, and I think I always think of that in the Seder moment um, that Murrah's having, she's a guest at a Seder, at someone else's Seder, and, and she's having an experience of like learning about a ritual and witnessing, uh, 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 witnessing something that then opens up something in her. So I, I find it always such a powerful moment because to me, those um those experiences, those ceremonies, those rituals, those songs are universal, even if they're specific to a culture. If you can, you know, get beyond perhaps the literal or the belong or not belong and just sort of experience the communion. Um, so that's what I love about that moment so much. And also, as also somebody who's, you know, immediately plugged into that viscerally and in my body, it, it was in turn, you interpreted it into a Greek chorus. I've never thought of that in that context, but then all of a sudden it's like, you know, what's the line? It's, um, it's not, it would have been, uh, it was. It wouldn't have happened to us. It wouldn't have happened to us. And I was like, it's a Greek chorus. Oh my God. In this context, it's a Greek. It wouldn't have happened to us. If we had da, 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 it wouldn't have happened to us. And I was like, you know, this, mer again, I've, I felt that merging of mythologies and that really like extremely, amazing kind of, I mean, Sherry, when you just said it, like, it just came out of you. I, there's like that subconscious process that must have happened because it's, it's a Greek chorus in this play. And it's just like ripped from the Seder in this new context, new interpretation. And it's wild how that works. I just had to like return to that. I thought it was just so awesome. Um, and on that note, <laughs> I want to use the like remainder just to like throw out there any like last thoughts you want to share about this work or the process of putting it together or what's the takeaway you want the audience to kind of like sit with while we before you know after we turn this off and everybody goes back to their lives a little bit. Can we start uh, with well, yes? Yeah. No, I was gonna point yeah, to you. I yeah, I just I just want to say how grateful I am. One of the things that I marveled at and was just felt like was such a gift is that this was an impossibility in so many ways. And um, um, from 
you know, I mean, more ways that I can describe. <laughs> and at every point, people like just kept just join the fold to, to open the way and to make things possible. And mm-hmm. it was just, um, it was a beautiful reminder of the power, not just of the art that we make outside, but of our need to, to um, um, our desire, our need to be of use to each other and to see that if I do something, it will change you. If I give you time, it will make something possible. And it just reminded me that generosity is not a thing we do. It is a, it is a thing that, that enriches us. Um, the doer also. And so I was so grateful to Debo and to Drew and to, um, I mean, uh, Carson, those are our, our designers and our cinematographer, to all of the people who volunteered their time and stayed till three in the morning, four in the morning, mm-hmm. because they were curious and they wanted to do something for somebody else. And gosh, what a beautiful world this is when when we when that happens. And I felt like, really grateful. So I'm just saying, thank you. <laughs> it, it really was. I mean, like the fact that it exists is amazing because there were so many things that went one way and we all ran after it, brought it back. And then it went the other way and we brought it back. But, um, I agree that, uh, um, I, I hope that all of our collaborators, um, Melissa Paranosic, who did the music, Matt Cappuccino, who did the editing, um, I, you know, Jackie, how does Jackie's last name? How she, our colorist. Yeah, I think it's Jackie Ng. Jackie Ng, our colorist. Um, just uh, who's working now. We're still working on color. Um, but uh, I mean, there were so many all-nighters that were pulled. There were so many 14 hour days and um, it really was a joyous coming together of people wanting to make something under these crazy circumstances. So other last thoughts before we wrap, Sarah, Stephanie. Well, I just want, I'm not going to, I'm just going to say yes, yes, yes to what Tamala and Sherry just said. The whole experience just like, like, having so many amazing talented people working at capacity just because they cared and sometimes I was like oh why you know when you have those moments with art you're like why well just because because we're making something and it was just so there was such a like a pure um uh, people were just there was just so much love uh just 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 because making something is powerful I don't know it just I just felt endlessly grateful um and really like um like I just like something in um like I felt like returned to my value about how I feel about the act of collaborating and creating that it really is regenerative in and of itself whatever that happens to the product even though I love what we made it was also just the process it felt really really powerful so i'm i'm just really grateful i just wanted to add that um to what was being said stephanie you have the last word on this i don't deserve the last word but this has just been a treat to watch this wonderful collaborative process unfold and um i think you know translation reading it's all a collaborative process and um and so just thanks for letting me be a part of it and see see how how it's worked so beautifully 
well, it has worked out really beautifully and I'm very uh, thrilled to get to moderate this conversation. And I want to let everyone know, including our audience, that this um, will be this will be available as a podcast on the ACA website. They've been kind enough to, to turn it into that. And thank you to our panelists. Thank you to ACA. And thank you to NYU Tisch for co-sponsoring as well. And to everyone who tuned in, took some time out of your day to participate. We're very grateful. Have a wonderful day.